Thanks for checking out the Courtroom Chronicles podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on criminal cases and the criminal justice process, and all discussions on this podcast are for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal advice. All cases and situations are different based on facts, evidence, and circumstances of the parties involved. Listeners to this podcast should not act on the information contained in any of the materials without first consulting legal counsel. Hey everyone, welcome back to episode two of Courtroom Chronicles with the County Attorney. That's Pinal County Attorney Kent Volkmer. I'm Mike Pelton, the Public Information Officer here at the Pinal County Attorney's Office. And today we're going to be talking about, well, I say the criminal justice process, but there's a lot involved in that. It's, as you know, it's a pretty complex process. It certainly is, and I think uh, it seems to be shrouded in mystery, even though we've got Law and & Order and we've got CSI and we've got all of these uh, TV shows that, that are you know, 42 minutes long and show you everything, uh, they actually show you very little. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions, a lot of misunderstandings on how the criminal justice system truly gets um, results. How the sausage is made. You don't always want to see it, but it's a complex process. And we could be here all day talking about the criminal justice system, but I think we're really wanting to focus today on one of the topics we get asked about all the time in public settings, even when we do some of our citizens' academies. A lot of folks ask, well, why do so many cases go to plea agreement? And let's start with actually some of the numbers. I mean, roughly how many cases uh, end up in a, a plea agreement? So I think it's easier to start with how many cases actually go to trial. And that is, in most agencies, between 1% and 2% of cases actually go to a trial. So that's what you typically see where there's a jury there, it's before a judge, there's arguing back and forth, and the state is obligated to prove its case. Um, uh, less than 2% typically go to trial, and then you've got a couple dismissals, but dismissals by and large are very, very rare. Uh, so what you're really talking about are cases being resolved. About 98% of those um, are resolved via plea agreement, which is an agreement between both the state and the defendant on the appropriate charges, what they're going to admit to, and potentially what the appropriate sentence is. Let's start with that small number first. One or 2% go to trial. I, I imagine some people out there are going, why not take everything to trial? I mean, that seems absurdly low, I'm sure a lot of people are thinking. So it's an argument that I hear frequently. Uh, in fact, I've had to do um, debates with the Federalist Society and uh, at ASU's School of Law, uh, where I was defending the use of plea agreements because um, during the you know, the Ten Amendments to the U.S. Constitution, the right to a trial by jury is actually the f most frequently um, referenced right. And all of these pleas arguably subvert that right. Uh, and I would say that that's not true, but that's the story that's being presented. Um, the reality is trials are cumbersome. Trials are incredibly expensive because of the resources uh, that are required. They take forever to get to that point because we want to get it right. And oftentimes the consequences for conviction are so dire that, that trial's just not really viable. And to be clear, there is a chance that the, the state's going to lose a trial. I mean, you could get a not guilty verdict. Certainly. Uh, this past year, 2023, our conviction rate was about 90%. And that's the highest uh, conviction rate that we have had since my now starting eighth year in office. So it's usually 80 to 90% of cases we secure a conviction that actually go to trial. But it, it, obviously a conviction is not guaranteed. So the thinking of, well, just take it to trial. Of course, this, this you know, defendant, this person accused of horrible stuff, lock them up forever. It, a conviction is not guaranteed. Even I mean, 90% conviction rate, even while great, still means some cases there was a not guilty verdict. Absolutely. And I think it's also important to realize that most cases that go to trial, um, 
they go to trial for one of two reasons. One, because the defendant is in fact maintaining their innocence, or they believe that the plea offer offered by the state was um, not adequate and they believe a judge could do better. But the majority of cases that go to trial is because the person's saying, I did nothing wrong. Um, so of course, if those go to trial, there are going to be not guilty verdicts. Something I know I've heard, I think you've heard it as well. Some of the arguments will be, ah, you guys don't take everything to trial because attorneys are lazy. They don't want to be trying all of their cases. They want to see the easiest path out. And therefore, some defendants aren't given the max penalty and they're just handed a plea agreement. I mean, how do you respond when you're asked about that? So I can't tell you that that's never the case. Um, you know, in any industry, you've got those that really bust their hump. You've got those that, that don't. Um, the vast majority of people fall in between. So are there attorneys out there? Are there prosecutors and defense attorneys who just don't want to go to trial? Certainly that exists. However, what you have to realize is most of us that are um, in this field, in the criminal defense world, we love the excitement. We love you know, the natural high that we get from going to trial. There's no better feeling in the world than the first time that you stand before a jury and you try and convince them of something. You open your mouth and you talk to that jury. So it's not the attorneys by and large trying to avoid trial. It's other things that get in the way because most attorneys love to be in trial. If you give them the choice of reading paper after paper, document after document, police report after police report, or going before a jury and trying to convince that jury of either a person's guilt or their innocence, nine out of 10 are saying, put me in courtroom all day long. I, I know a lot of it's on individual circumstances, but I mean, if I'm you know, arrested and accused of a, a serious crime, I mean, am I guaranteed to be able to initiate uh, plea agreement talks with the state? Or I mean, kind of how does that work? What cases do and, and don't get plea agreements? So that's a great question. And, and like most things, uh, the best lawyerly answer is it depends. Um, there is a couple things I do want to clear up though, just so everybody kind of appreciates it. Uh, what happens is once you get arrested, you're not automatically charged. Um, you're booked into the jail or maybe not, but law enforcement for felony cases in Arizona, they submit the charges to the county attorney's office. We have to independently review the police report and in independently review what's going on. And we have to make an independent determination whether we think that criminal charges are actually warranted. So let's assume that the county attorney's office has reviewed it charges have been brought, uh, then it's in the discretion of the county attorney's office whether um, offering a plea agreement is in the interest of justice. And you had brought up that initial point because a lot of times you hear on the news of, hey, Joe Smith was arrested and booked on uh, aggravated assault and first degree murder charges. That's what a lot of people think. Oh, they've been charged with that. Then they get a little confused because we come into play. They, what that person is actually charged with may not be at all what they were arrested for. That's correct. So booked um, when, when you hear they're being booked with or initially charged with, that's the um, offenses that law enforcement believes that they have sufficient evidence to prove. But again, under our system, uh, our attorneys, our prosecutors have to independently review it. Most of the time we agree we're really similar, but sometimes we're like, it's not there. Other times we're like, well, you missed this whole kind of area and we actually bring enhanced charges. So it's not until the county attorney's office actually looks at it or the AG's office in certain circumstances and actually presents that case to a grand jury uh, or files the indictment paperwork that, that we actually know the true charges they're being brought against. And once you start talks on a potential plea agreement, I imagine it's tough to find that sweet spot where the defendant really wants to take that and the state is satisfied with the offense or satisfied with the with the sentence. So how do you kind of find that sweet spot and how do you kind of go about maneuvering, you know, what what's fair but what's tough enough? So under the ethical rules, prosecutors are what, what are called ministers of justice. Uh, we're not supposed to just seek, seek convictions at any cost. Um, we're also not to give free passes to everybody. Instead, we're supposed to look at cases individually and do what's right. 
Um, justice uh, is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, you know, when you become county attorney, it's not like there's a class they give you. Uh, even in law school, it's not like there's a class they give you. There's nobody that ever tells you what justice is. Um, I can tell you that it took me a while, it took me really a couple years to really decide how I, I want to define justice, but how we define justice in this office is, and you use the language, it's that sweet spot where um, public safety, personal accountability, and mercy collide. It's not an easy place where they all come together, but there's a collision, there's friction. Because I, I said it earlier, it's in the eye of the beholder. So a criminal defendant very often says, hey, don't look at this one action that I did. This was me at my lowest. This was me under the influence of drugs. This was me at a hard time in my life. This is a one-time decision, and you shouldn't view me just as this one-time decision, but instead look at the entirety of, of who I am. On the other hand, you have your victims, and your victims are saying, no. Uh, this person did this action and they need to be held to account for this action. And oftentimes they want the maximum punishment. So if you ask that victim what, what punishment is or what, um, what justice is, they say maximum punishment. Again, if you compare that to the defendant, the defendant's saying, oh, it's mercy, mercy, mercy. Uh, and then you have a third party and that, that's really the public at large. And the public at large, oftentimes when they hear this is what the victim wants and this is what the defendant wants, they actually come to the middle and say, I think both of them are a little bit off and this is more realistic. And that's where that public safety component kind of comes in. So when we're looking at what an appropriate offer is, we're weighing what does the victim want? Because look, the victim did nothing wrong as being harmed. We want to do everything we can to give them hope. We want to give them everything we can to get them on the path. We want to help them out. But by the same token, we want the defendant just to comply with our laws. We want to provide a pathway to redemption for that defendant, but we also have to keep the, the community safe. So all of those are playing in our mind at the same time when we try and come up with a plea agreement that meets those interests of justice. I know we could spend hours talking about, you know, potential sentences and the sentencing ranges and different offenses and how it fits into, you know, that type of sentencing matrix. But when you are crafting a plea agreement, in its simplest terms, and I know there's really no way to simplify it, but how do you find that that number that is, okay, maybe it's a little less than they could get at trial, but given the facts of this case, it's good enough. I mean, how do you come up with a number? So I would encourage all of the listeners, if they get an opportunity and they're bored some night, just to, to Google um, the sentencing guidelines. The Arizona Supreme Court every year puts out the sentencing guidelines. Now, it's gonna look very Greek to a lot of people because it is designed for practitioners in the criminal justice field. Um, but when they, when they summarize the sentencing scheme for the state of Arizona annually, it's about 17 pages. That's the summary. But in that summary, they give you various charts. And what those charts are is if it goes to trial and the person is convicted, this is the range in which the judge um, should be sentencing. So when we're looking at what that number is, that gives us a starting space. Um, but then we take things into account like um, if somebody is remorseful, if somebody takes accountability. So they may be charged with a class two, but if they take a plea agreement, it means they're admitting to what they did. It means they're taking some measure of responsibility. So we may drop it from a class two to a class four, or to a class four to a class five, or maybe to a class six, there's that ability to play. But when we start looking, we, we really start with those guidelines and we treat them truly as guidelines. And then we look at what similarly situated individuals also got. Because what you can't have is you can't have one person that goes to one prosecutor and they get a finger wagging, don't do it again. And you get another prosecutor and they say, you're going to prison for five years. I mean, that, that's just disparate. That's not equal justice under the law. So we really try to, to create 
Um, we don't have hard policies, we don't have hard guidelines, but we have rough guidelines and we make sure our attorneys that are practicing in the same field are always communicating to try and keep these sentences and these ranges pretty similar. How difficult is it to make everybody happy? <laughs> this is funny, but if I do my job, I typically make nobody happy. Uh, I normally find myself in the spot where the victim believes that we've been too, too kind or too generous or too merciful and the defendant is upset because we've been too harsh. We've been too tough on them and we haven't taken all these things into consideration. The only people that are actually satisfied are John and Jane Q. Public who have no idea what's actually happening behind the wall. So it, it puts us kind of in a difficult situation sometimes. Maybe we already touched on it, but what is maybe the biggest misconception about plea agreements that you want to clear up? It's not an easy way out. Uh, it, it is not a way for lazy people to resolve things. It is um, a pretty tried and true and frankly cost-effective way to handle things. Um, it literally saves the taxpayer tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars depending on the size of your jurisdiction. And quite frankly, if we had to try every case, uh, it would be years and years and years and years till even the simplest cases uh, were ever to go forward, meaning the victim gets no justice, meaning the defendant gets no justice. If they're innocent, they haven't proven their innocence. If they need consequences, it may be three or four or five years till they get their consequence. Nobody wins. So plea agreements are a necessary evil to make our system as efficient as we can to, again, put us where we need, where victims can begin to heal and defendants can be held accountable. And what, how do you kind of see this playing out over the coming years? I mean, just a continued tool in the toolbox, or where do you see maybe the path of this going forward in the future? I don't see things changing dramatically. Um, again, we are, we're in a system right now, um, or we're in a, a place right now where the system runs pretty efficiently. Obviously, COVID created some issues. I just got an email yesterday saying there's about 9,000 cases in the average prosecutor's office that is um, backed up because of COVID. We're not experiencing any of that. We've fought through. Uh, we work collectively with our judges across the street here. We work collectively with our defense attorneys to really have a system that is as fair as we can make it. Um, it's not a perfect system. It's the best system devised by man that we're aware of, but it's certainly not perfect. Uh, there's going to be tweaks, there's going to be small modifications to it, but ultimately I, plea agreements are here to stay. And when you talk about who even is going to have the chance to receive a potential plea agreement, I mean, you, ultimately you have a lot of power in that decision. Yes, as your elected county attorney, and as any elected county attorney or district attorney or whatever name they go by in, in your jurisdiction, um, every prosecutor that works actually works under me and it is delegated authority. So while that individual prosecutor makes the plea agreement, it's actually through the power that, that this, the voter has vested in me. Um, so at the end of the day, the person that you put as your county attorney, as your district attorney, as your elected prosecutor um, is incredibly, incredibly powerful, but also very important uh, because there are prosecutors who don't believe plea agreements really should be offered, believe that more people should be in prison. You've got other prosecutors who believe nobody should be in prison, so they offer sweetheart plea agreements. Um, and and in it, there is no, no norm. There is no rule book. There is no training. Uh, frankly, there's not even much in the way of gutters that we're told to stay in between. Instead, it, it's up to the individual conscious, conscience of each uh, elected.
So the game plan, so to speak, that's my wording. But I mean, when you approach some of these cases and determine who is or who is not eligible for a plea, I mean, that's a lot of power that, that you have. And in theory, somebody could come in and say, no one's getting a plea agreement or everybody's getting a plea agreement. And I don't think a lot of people think about that when they go to vote for county attorney. No offense, Kent. I think a lot of people don't even know what the county attorney does. So they just check a box. Who's the incumbent? Is it an R or D next to their name? There's not a lot of thought given to, oh, what power does this person actually have? You're absolutely right. Um, the reality is I get an opportunity to personally interact with um, not a lot of our voters. I mean, we have half a million people that live here. If I can meet with a few thousand on an annual basis, that's a pretty good year for me. So you as the voter uh, are giving incredible power to your prosecutor. Uh, I can tell you my philosophy is not the same as everybody else. Uh, here in, in the Pinal County Attorney's Office, what we really look to do, is this a dangerous person or is this somebody that did something dumb? If this is a dangerous person, person, then we're starting with the presumption they probably need to be in prison. For, to keep you safe, to keep me safe, to keep our families, our friends safe, we're gonna have to put dangerous people in prison. But if they did something dumb, we're looking at how can we put them on a path to redemption? How can we put them on a path where they can be a successful member of our community, where they can be a parent to their children, they can be an uncle to their nieces and nephews, they can be a, a aunt to their friends. I mean, we, a grandparent, what we're trying to do is really distinguish who do we really need to lock up and who, um, who really needs a second chance. And that's where plea agreements, that's what allows us to really differentiate between those that are truly dangerous and those that really just did something dumb at their worst moment. And what's funny is the wrong way to put it, but it's you talk about how many different rabbit holes you could go down just on this topic. It's just one small part. I mean, plea agreements are just one small part of the criminal justice process, right? Absolutely. I mean, just the process of even charging um, starts a case on a particular path. And we could have an entire episode on charging. How do we make charging decisions? And what do we weigh when we make these charging decisions? So yeah, plea agreements are just one little cog in the giant machine of the criminal justice system. And I can't wait till we have some future episodes talking about the other, uh, a lot of the other topics. We're going to drag some of our bureau chiefs in here to kind of explain what they do. And we'll hopefully demystify a lot of this process for everyone. But uh, County Attorney Volkmer, I want to thank you for your time. Thank you, uh, you at home or if you're in your car for listening or watching this. And we will see you next time on Courtroom Chronicles with the County Attorney. Thank you and stay safe.